Barbie, from the sermon series, God on Film, spoken by Pastor Doug Cho. We are continuing in our movie series, right, God on Film. Uh, we are preaching on scripture today, but we are preaching through the movie Barbie. Ladies, ladies, who watched the Barbie movie? Raise your hand. Ooh, hey, hey, Barbie. Hey, Barbie. I see some of you are wearing pink. Good job. I failed the mission. Any, uh, my Kens, who watched the movie? Yes, loud and proud. You are Knuff, Scott. You are Knuff. I am Knuff. All right. I thought it was a great movie. It was really funny. Uh, There's a lot of humor in it. Uh, I, I was laughing. Mostly I cried during the movie because there's a lot of depth to the movie. Uh, there are a lot of messages. There's a lot of social commentary, critique in the movie, a lot of important messages that were being put forth. And so there are a lot of things that we can focus on through the, in this movie. I'll try to hit on them, but we're going to talk about just a couple things um, for the sake of today. Because in actuality, there is actually a, quite a dark side to this pink movie. And that dark side lies in this. Barbie's assumption, right, she's a doll, literally a doll, right, who is made for girls in the world. Her assumption was her existence, right, her perfect, pristine, intelligent, powerful existence fixed many of the problems of the world, typically with misogyny, with sexism, with women being unable to do it. Because in Barbie's world, women did everything. Right? They were presidents, they were doctors, they were construction workers. Right? So her assumption was that they had fixed everything. But when she is confronted with the real world, right, she is met with so much brokenness. So much brokenness. And it brings me to this question. This is our question for today. Why is God our only true hope? Why is God our only true hope? That's our question today. But before we start, let's pray together. Father, we commit this service to you. It is yours. As worship. That God, um, you may be lifted up on high, be glorified, be honored, be blessed today, Lord. So we ask you, Father, would you fill this place with your presence? We need you in this room. Would you fill in this place the train of your robe, God? Would you speak through your servant? And Lord God, may everything be pleasing unto you. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Uh, so the start of the movie essentially gives you a peek into Barbie's life. Barbie's perfect life, right? Life in plastic is... Yeah, come on. Life in plastic is fantastic. 
right, is perfect because she is perfect, her house is perfect, her life is perfect, every day is perfect. Girls run the show, and Ken lives for her attention. Right? That is like literally his existence. And so Barbie is partying up. She goes to the beach. She talks to her friend, the president. She's having a great time. They have a party every night and it honors the girls. They're dancing. And then she has thoughts of death, which she's never had before. And this kind of awakens her to this change that is happening. It's the beginning of this transformation in Barbie. And we kind of saw it in the trailer, right? She starts thinking about death. Her showers aren't working well. Her home is kind of defunct. She falls off her house, right? Because Barbie is literally a doll. She like floats down and everything's awesome, right? Her heels hurt. She starts getting cellulite, right? And then all of this sparks a journey for Barbie to go return back to perfection by entering into the real world. Right? Her journey is, I need to get back my old life. I need to become perfect. And as someone who really decided to follow Christ a little later in life, I remember actually feeling something similar to this. Now, I'm not saying my life was perfect. Quite the contrary. I had so many issues that I was dealing with. But when I had given my life to Christ, I actually kind of thought to myself, my problems would go away the mess in my life would straighten itself out. That when I had given myself to Jesus, right, I would be truly a new creation, right? I wouldn't suffer from generational sin patterns. I wouldn't suffer from the things I had. I wouldn't have this crushing social anxiety, right? But they didn't go away. In actuality, when I continued delving deeper into my faith, when I started learning more about myself, I found more things, dark things, things I didn't like, depressing things, things that were just not fun. You know, when, when you discover darkness about yourself, it's not fun. That truth is not fun. That type of self-awareness is painful. And then I learned, oh, I'm going to wrestle with these things for the rest of my life. It's troubling. But I want to direct our attention to this passage in the Bible, Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. It opens up with verse 1 like this. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Obviously, we're talking about faith in our Lord and the hope and promises that he has for us. When I say faith, what I'm talking about is a complete trust and surrender to Jesus. A complete trust and surrender to Jesus. Right? God being our only true hope. As we surrender ourselves in faith to him, as we live our lives for him, how is he our only true hope if we have to deal with so much brokenness? So my faith was shaken. I was like, man, when I read the Bible, I don't feel great about myself. Like, look at this. Check this out. Hebrews 11 continues, right? There's, they talk about Abel. They talk about Enoch. They talk about Noah. They talk about Abraham. And it goes to verse 13 like this. All these people were still living by faith when they died. 
They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And, you know, that checks out because when I think about Noah, right, I think about how faithful he was and I think about his lifetime work. He builds this huge ark because God says, I am going to flood the earth. And God literally restarts humanity through Noah, right? Then you see Enoch, right? Does, Does anyone know about Enoch? Enoch is literally walking in the garden with God. And you know what God is like? God is like Enoch, I like you. You know what? Come in my pocket. He puts Enoch in his pocket and he takes him to heaven. That's literally what happens. Not that God has pockets, but yes. He literally takes Enoch to heaven because he's like, Enoch, I like you. So yeah, that checks out. Abraham. Abraham wasn't perfect, right? But Abraham left his country to follow God and his promises, to become this great patriarch, right? To live this life as a father of the people. And then I look at myself after I read this, and I'm like, man, sometimes I just worry about my next paycheck. Sometimes I'm just stressed about my loans. Sometimes I'm just fed up with my own brokenness. My generational sin pad, you know, like, ah, my grandfather struggled with lust. My father struggled with lust and infidelity. I struggle with it. I'm like, God, this is what I'm struggling with. How am I going to live like these people? Maybe like some of you suffered with social anxiety the way I used to have crushing social anxiety, constantly wondering what people thought about me. I used to lie constantly because I didn't think I was good enough for people. I used to think of nothing else except the critique and the criticism of what people might think of me. And maybe you look in the mirror and you're like, God, why am I so lonely? God, why is my marriage not what I thought my marriage would be? Why am I so unhappy? Why do I feel inadequate? Why do I feel like I never make enough money? Am I not delivered, Lord? Am I living by faith, God? Where is my joy that is promised to me? Does anyone track with me here? That in this brokenness, in this place, man, how am I supposed to live by faith? And then the author goes to verse 32. Verse 32. What more shall I say? I do not have time to talk about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised to shut the mouths of lions, quench the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword. And I'm like, hold up. Hold up, writer of Hebrews. Hold up. Wait a minute. Because if you know anything about these four men, well, Barak is the exception. We're going to take Barak out as the exception, right? These four men are judges, or these three men are judges. Barak wasn't a judge. They're in the book of Judges. And if you know anything about the book of Judges, the earlier judges were the good judges, right? Because Judges is a book about when you, as you read through it, it's literally about how bad can Israel get? That is what the book is about. It's how bad can we get here? How depraved can people be? 
And so the first three judges are actually like epic. They're heroes. They're faithful. And Deborah is one of these judges. So Barak actually rides on her coattails, right? So it's a little, it's a little shout out to you ladies. Deborah is the, the judge that is just incredible, right? And then after her, we get to the middle part of judges. And like these judges are like, Ugh. A little sus, right, these judges. And then you get to the last three judges, and you're like, oh, these judges are no good, no good, so far from the heart of God. And Gideon, Samson, Jephthah are included in this category, right? Samson actually didn't really have any regard for God at all. But these men did not end their lives well. So how could we say that they were living by faith? I mean, take Gideon. Gideon, for example. Yes, I know, right, God calls him. Gideon's a coward, right? God calls him, right? And he gets this army, and God's like, cut down your army, and Gideon does that, right? So we attribute that to faith. Fine, sure. Gideon conquers in God's name. Fine, sure. You know what Gideon does at the end of his life? With the gold that he pillages, he makes an idol, and then he has the people of Israel worship it like a god. And then he dies. That is Gideon's legacy. So, like, where is this living by faith coming from? That is the question we need to ask when we read this. And we can find the answer in several of these characters, but we're going to look at David, who is no better. So we're going to kind of transition here. We're going to look at David. Where is this faith coming from? Because his life, like, so much of this makes sense when you look at it. 1 Samuel 16 background here. If you don't know, King Saul was the first king, right? God rejected Saul. He's like, I don't want Saul to be my king no more. And he says, I have chosen someone after my own heart. That's David, right? So he sends Samuel to Jesse to examine his sons, anoint the king. Verse six, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab, one of Jesse's sons, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. You know, like Eliab is probably like really big, really tall, really jacked, really good looking. And Samuel's like, that's my guy. This is my guy. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab. So he's probably like a little less good looking, a little less tall, right? A little less strong. And he had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass by. But Samuel said, no, not this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Now, I want you to think about this. I imagine that Jesse had his own ranking for his sons as he passed before the prophet Samuel. Right? Jesse had his own criteria for what a king should be. So much so that Jesse doesn't invite David to this event where someone is supposed to be anointed as king. Right? That word he uses there, youngest, in the Hebrew is hakatan. It's very condescending. It's like my runt, my little afterthought is not important. That's why David has the least important job. He tends to the sheep. Samuel says, send for him. Uh, we continue. 
We will not sit down until he arrives. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. The spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. David has done nothing at this point. David hasn't slain a giant. David's not a king yet. He hasn't defied a king yet. David hasn't won any wars. But God calls David worthy. God anoints David in this moment. But then you look at David's future and you look at his sin. Because yes, David had a very successful campaign in war, but David had dark sin in his life, right? He forces Bathsheba into adultery with him. He impregnates her. He tries to cover it up by murdering her husband. His son Absalom wants to kill him and take the throne. He has another son, when David is much older, that tries to become king behind his back. David has many mistakes. He has deep sin. His family is in chaos. David's life doesn't end very well. So what could David hope for in all of this? And this is what we see here. Because God knows the capacity to which David can sin. He knows. But he still chooses him. He still anoints him. He still remains faithful to him. Even after David sins, he doesn't blot him out. He still uses David's line to bring Jesus. We get our answer when we go back to Hebrews. This is chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This high priest, 1 John tells us, is Jesus who advocates on our behalf, who is atoning for our sin. Atoning, present continued tense, right? He's doing it even now for our sin. That is the hope that we have in God, that even in despite ourselves, our Savior, our Jesus, he works on our behalf. And so when we look at our own perfections, you know, there's this moment that Barbie has because she's out in the world and she thinks that she's changed it and she goes and she finds this little girl and she's so happy to meet her and the girl's like, I want nothing to do with you. She's like, why? Why? Why, why, why do people hate me? And she feels like a failure. She feels stupid and she feels ugly. And she actually sits down with this woman named Ruth and she said, I'm used to looking perfect, but I don't feel perfect. And then Ruth looks at her and she says, 
I think you're just right. Even in our messiness, when we go back to God, He's not expecting you to be fixed. He's not expecting you to have it all together. He just wants you to surrender your life to him. And I think he tells us, you're just right. You know, when I look in the back and I see people praying, that ministry is my favorite because you get to witness all these people. And it's like really painful because people go in, in tears when they ask for prayer, prayer against drug addiction, prayer against sex addiction, prayer in the, for a broken marriage, prayer for broken relationships, prayer against loneliness, prayer because they don't know when their, their next paycheck is coming. And they're praying. But I'm oddly encouraged whenever these people come for prayer because what that tells me is they are still contending for themselves. They have not given up in the hope that God will move something for them. That when they walk back there and they ask for someone to lay a hand on them, they believe somewhere in their hearts, I don't care how big or how small their belief is, they believe that God will move on their behalf. That is the hope that which we live by. That is God our one true hope. My father, my father's sick. And if you don't know, you know, his cancer hit stage four last year. We're on our fourth treatment. Not fourth cycle, fourth treatment, which means the first three failed. And it's actually been like, if I can be real here, it's been really hard and really frustrating. Our pattern has been something like this. We'll get a treatment. He'll take it. And, you know, he'll suffer through the first three months. We'll get a scan. And it'll look like it's working. So we celebrate that, right? Because we want to celebrate these victories. Everyone tells us, oh, you need to celebrate these victories. So we celebrate hard, right? And then three months later, we'll get another scan. And it tells us that either the cancer has evolved or the cancer is just becoming resilient his treatment and every time we hear that news it's like a punch in the gut so it's a celebrate disappointment go on to the next one celebrate disappointment go on to the next one celebrate disappointment go on to the next one and like i i, I sometimes i go to god i'm like i don't know how many more times i can celebrate god like i, I do you want me to be happy because you know we got into another chemo treatment we're admitting my father into the hospital tonight, actually. Do you want me to be happy now? Do, should I celebrate? Because I'm tired. I'm sick and tired of praying about this. And like to be real, like my prayers is really dry. In the beginning, I, I, I sent emails out like consistently. And like I had my community pray and people were praying and I was really encouraged. I was going to preach the gospel to my father and I was gonna, he was going to change and he was going to be transformed. And I was like really believing that, contending for my God's soul, not just his physical healing, but for his spiritual healing. And man, he hasn't changed one bit. Man, I'm not going to use the word I want to use, but he's still a jerk. He's still cusses my mom out when he's in a bad mood. 
He's almost 80. A lot of times people say people that age don't change. But you know, I still try to pray because God is our one true hope. If not you, God, who else? No one. So God, I pray over my dad. I pray, God, that you would heal his body in Jesus' name. But more than that, you would open the eyes of his heart, Lord God, that he would know you, that he would surrender his life to you, that he would know the joy of Jesus Christ in his life. Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. I pray that. Because when we go to God and we call on his redemptive power, his restorative power, it is not my faithfulness that makes this work out. It is not your faithfulness. It is God's faithfulness that we believe in. It is God's faithfulness that he is calling us to. And that is the faithfulness he calls us to each and every single day. We are called to God's faithfulness. That is why he is our one true hope. That even when we are unfaithful, God is faithful. David did nothing, but God anointed him out of his faithfulness. David did evil, but out of God's faithfulness, he was restored. That in our mess, in our struggle, and in our sin, we have a Savior who empathizes with us, who will not give up on us, who is sanctifying us, redeeming us, transforming us. That is our one true hope today. That is our God. And so, I, I got to go back to the movie. <laughs> As Barbie and Ken are exploring the real world, Barbie is shocked at how broken this world is, that life is so different. Women do not run the world. She describes her experience as violence against her. She says, it feels like violence against me when people are ogling her, catcalling her, someone smacks her butt. Right? And on the other end, this dummy Ken is like, this is the best. Right? He's skating around and he's like, I love that people are looking at me. And he feels admired and strengthened. He feels his glorious masculinity being appreciated, right? He feels powerful. And what ends up turning out to be, um, I guess, like the antagonist or the adversary in this movie is. Ken learns about patriarchy. He, Ken is like, what is this patriarchy that I hear about? Why is it that men have all this power? And then Ken, you know, in his foolishness, he's like, oh, it must do it to do with horses. And he's like looking for ways to like ride around on the horses and all that stuff, right? We can't not talk about patriarchy. Patriarchy defined is lineage. It has everything to do with lineage. Lineage through the male line. That's why it's called patriarchy. We actually still have this and practice this. This is something from ancient times. But we still do it, right? We still give dowries. We still give engagement rings to women. Women, when we get married, a lot of them change their last names. When then we become one family unit. So property and land ownership back in antiquity was tracked through this way, through lineage. This was very important in Israel because ownership means power and land means that you have a means to survive. 
It was a means to live. That's why ownership and lineage was very, very sacred, actually, in Israel's patriarchy. So much so that if someone was foolish with their land because it was connected to your name, if someone's foolish and sold it away or gave it away for some reason, that land could always be restored back. It was in the law. It could always be restored back. But when we talk about Abraham as patriarch or God as our patriarch, we're actually painting a very different version of patriarchy. Okay? The key difference being patriarchy in the world, this world, elevates men with power and position naturally. I, right? We're not going to say that it's on purpose. It's naturally because with power, right, or with land or with that type of highlighting, it just comes this elevated position in itself, right? There's a scene where Ken asks a random employee for a job because he's going around and he's like, I could be a doctor because I'm a man, right? I can do this because I'm a man. And he walks around doing all these things, but people keep telling him he's not qualified. He's not qualified. He's like, why not? I'm a man, right? This is supposed to be patriarchy. And he asks this employee, he's like, what happened to patriarchy? And this man says, oh, we're still doing it. We're just hiding it better. One of the ending scenes is a speech given by America Ferreira about the ridiculous standards and expectations that women and mothers and daughters have to live under. She's, some, she's uh, Part of it, she says, you have to answer for men's bad behavior, which is insane. But if you point that out, you're accused of complaining. You're supposed to stay pretty for men, but not so pretty that you tempt them too much or that you threaten other women because you're supposed to be part of the sisterhood. But you always stand out and always be grateful, but never forget that the system is rigged. So find a way to acknowledge that, but also be grateful. And she continues to go on and on about the the burden, the mental load that women and mothers carry. And so while we claim we live in an egalitarian world, to be honest, man, I don't think I could last very long in a woman's shoes. I got to be real with you. It sounds exhausting. It sounds tiring. Patriarchy in the Bible was meant to redeem not just men, but women as well. It was redemption for all of God's people, not just men. All right, let me explain this to you. Because this is why we call God Father, okay? This is the patriarchy of God. The patriarchy of God, the main descriptions of it, the main characteristics of it, its essence is a deep burden and responsibility for people. Right? This is where we actually find what the concept of redemption is. Redemption comes from patriarchy. Right? And I'm going to bring up a study. I'm going to paraphrase a study done by Dr. Sandra Richter. She's a Harvard PhD. She's incredible. And it's pretty relevant that we, you know, we use a woman's research to kind of highlight what we have here today. Israel's patriarchs were all called to be caretakers of their people. Because remember, lineage means land and land means power. And that means to survive. So a woman who lost her sons and her husband, big trouble. Because that means she had no more means to survive. So in actuality, Jewish law required that the husband's brother or his closest relative actually sleep with her and give her a son. So that that son could continue the lineage in her husband's name. Okay? 
This is a big deal. This is what happens to Ruth in the book of Ruth. Ruth marries Naomi's son. His name's Milan, right? They go out, but Naomi's husband and her sons, they die. Right, so we have this scene where Naomi's like, leave me, I have no more sons for you. But Ruth is like, no, I'm going to stay with you in this destitute situation. So they go back to Israel, right? Fast forward, Ruth encounters Boaz, who is part of Naomi's family. And Ruth then asks him to redeem her family. This is the first time you see redemption in the Bible. It's in the book of Ruth. She asks him to redeem her family. This is Ruth 4, 4 to 6. Like she, she asked him to redeem it. And then so Boaz, um, he says, but we need to check with someone who's ahead of me in line first, right? There's someone closer. So Boaz sits him down. He gives him a situation. This guy goes, I will redeem it. He said, this is the other guy. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also require acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. So this is saying, when you buy this land, this land is not your land. This land belongs to Ruth, right? At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it. I cannot do it. And so Boaz is willing Right? The original redeemer is willing, but he backs out, so Boaz takes it up. Why? And this is one of the characteristics that we see in redemption. It is because redemption is costly. The original redeemer refuses to do this because he doesn't want to endanger his own estate. He's like, I'm not going to go broke for her. I'm not going to endanger my family for her. You do it. Right? This is a glimpse at the redemption that God has for his people. We see it through the patriarchs in the Old Testament. Abraham. Abraham, he's doing well for himself, right? He's conquering, he's fighting, he's doing all these battles, he's building up this family. He is a great patriarch. He has a nephew named Lot. Lot goes off into this land because it looks fertile, but he gets captured by the king of Eliam. And so as the patriarch of the family, Abraham gathers all his people, all the fighting men in his family, all his servants, all that he has. He puts his life on the line and he goes to war with this king to rescue his nephew. This is another picture of the redemption that we have. This is the burden of a patriarch who risks all that he has, goes to war for his people. A deep burden and responsibility. And one more example. We have the prophet Hosea and Gomer, right? God says, Hosea, I want you to marry Gomer, who's an adulteress, a prostitute. I want you to marry her to show the people my heart for Israel. So Hosea marries her, right? He marries her, right? In those days, Gomer was cursed. When you're known as an adulteress, law says that you're blot out. No one cares for you, even if she had sons of her own, right? They would shun her family. No one wants anything to do with Gomer. But Hosea comes, restores her, makes her his wife, gives her children. They have three children together. She has sons. She has a line again. She has Hosea's family now. And then she cheats on him again. And she goes back to her life of prostitution. 
And this is what Hosea 3 says. The Lord said to me, go, show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and lethic of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way toward you. This man has to buy back his wife. Okay, so Gomer, for some reason or another, right, she's out giving herself away. She gets caught, and now she's put into slavery, right? She's being sold in public. Hosea has to go out into his village in front of everyone and buy back the mother of his children. He has to buy back the mother of his children. I love my wife so much. I ain't doing this. No. Kick rocks, right? No. That's crazy. And then he dedicates himself to her. Don't be intimate with any other man, and I will be the same towards you. I will dedicate myself to you once again. This is God's heart for redemption for his people, that even when we are unfaithful, even when we choose to put ourselves in destitution and dire situations, God says, I will call you back to me. That is why God is our one true hope. Yeah, I'm going to go on a tangent here, but like prodigal son, right? I'm going to take, take all what we said about patriarchy and then put a parallel with the prodigal son. Right? The prodigal son, you know this, is a parable. It's a set of three parables. Right? The first one being the, the, the shepherd who leaves the, one for the, uh, the 99 for the one, the woman who finds her lost coin. There's this great joy that's being described in these parables. There is this intense joy, so much so when the woman finds her coin, she must tell all her neighbors, look, I have found my coin. It was once lost, now it is found. There is this great joy when the son comes home. Even though he is unrepentant, the father comes and covers him before he can say a word, covers him, takes on his shame, restores his place, and he says, praise the Lord because my son was lost and now he's found. And he throws a party. Even in our unfaithfulness, God has great joy in the redemption of his people. That is why he is our one true hope. God redeemed me from so many bad decisions. Many of you know I played poker professionally for a little bit. I lost $100,000 in about a month and two years of my life. And I was, you know, at the time, I was like a young 20-something. So I was like, how am I ever going to recover from this? But here I am. God redeemed me from those things. He didn't give me back my money. God redeemed me when I was found. <laughs> I didn't think you all would laugh. God, was <laughs> God redeemed me when I was unfaithful. God redeemed me when I was wandering when I was sleeping around and giving myself away to fill something that was in my heart, God redeemed me. God gave me a good wife 
you know, because of my heritage, because of the generations before me, because of the infidelity of my father, the infidelity of my grandfather, I thought I was doomed. Generational sin is like a very real thing. In psychiatry, they call it generational patterns. It's like, I'm doomed. But it's because God is faithful. I can live faithfully to my wife, and I have to depend on him every day for it. Because when we fight, it's so dramatic. We're so dramatic. There was one time, oh my goodness, like we're like fighting, we're like, we're both very hot headed, but like I was like putting on my jacket, it's like I'm gonna leave, and she's putting on her jacket, she's like, no, I'm gonna leave. And so we're both trying to leave the house, right? But praise the Lord for his grace and mercy upon my household. That when I became a father, that I could be a good father. That I could love my daughter. You know, when I posted a picture of my acceptance letter to seminary, the majority of the comments were, really? Because that was the reputation that I had. A liar, a womanizer. I'm actually tongue-tied, so it's, like, difficult to speak publicly. But through it all, God has been so faithful to me. God is my one true hope. God calls us to his faithfulness every day. And even in our unfaithfulness, our God continues to redeem us. He paid the ultimate price for us. God, our patriarch, our one true hope, he sent his one and only son on our behalf, his firstborn, Jesus Christ, to come and to die for us so that we could be restored unto him. Amen. That is redemption. Amen. Let's pray. Just going to give you a second. <sighs> Just go before the Lord. And I don't know, like, I want you, let's do an exercise. I want you to imagine God in his glory, in his throne room, whatever that looks like for you, right? Jesus is sitting at his right hand. And when you present yourself before the Father, when you come with whatever you're coming with, your, your sin, your secret, if it's shame, if it's guilt, when you present before yourself before the Lord with any mistake or temptation, and you look at God's face, did you know that there's great joy when he looks upon his children. That his heart longs to restore his people over and over again. Because he is a high priest who empathizes with his people. He knows their weakness. And he says, that's okay. Because I am enough. I am enough. So go before the Lord, and I want you to present yourself. Because God, here I am. 
I long to be in your presence. I long to hear your voice. And I promise you, he will not disappoint. Create in me a pure heart, O oh God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for all that you are, all that you are continuing to do. You are our only hope. We praise your name. All glory, all honor is yours. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.